Hi, everybody. Welcome to Producing the Beatles, the podcast dedicated to exploring the untold story of producer George Martin's revolutionary collaboration with John, Paul, George, and Ringo. I'm your host, Jason Krupa. Normally on this podcast, we examine how George Martin and the Beatles worked together to forge a new approach to the recording studio through the use of a variety of techniques to build up carefully crafted recordings layer by layer. But what happens when you remove that process? Today, we'll look at the project where the Beatles did just that during the famously troubled Get Back sessions of January 1969, a month that started with the Beatles at their lowest ebb and ended with an electrifying final live performance on the rooftop of Apple Records. Get Back, later retitled and reconfigured as Let It Be, had originally been intended as a two-hour television program. The first hour was to feature the Beatles rehearsing an all-new collection of songs, and the second would see them returning to the stage for the first time since 1966 with a performance in front of a live audience in some exotic location. There were a lot of factors that kept this project from going as intended. A profound lack of planning and organization, John's heroin addiction, and the fact that the Beatles were still exhausted from five and a half grueling months of making the White Album. But the factor we're most interested in today is the Beatles' decision to present themselves as a strictly live rock and roll band with no overdubs and no editing, something they had really ceased to be on that day in June 1962, when George Martin began impressing upon them his method for crafting and constructing a studio recording. I use the term recording artist pretty frequently on this podcast, and for good reason. The Beatles, by the end of 1968, had pushed the art of recording into previously unimagined places. By contrast, Get Back was a total rejection of the art of recording that George Martin and the Beatles had developed over the previous six years. Martin remembered that John Lennon was very frank about this, saying that they didn't want any of Martin's, quote, production shit, end quote. In the face of such a blunt directive, what place was there for Martin in this project? One of the prevailing myths about these sessions is that George Martin wasn't very involved, but how often was he actually present during the get-back rehearsals and recordings? What was his level of involvement when he was present? And finally, who actually produced these sessions? Today, we'll answer those questions by listening to selections from recordings made during the production, as well as a couple of rare interview clips on this episode of Producing the Beatles. Let It Be was uh, an unhappy time. Um, everybody was at each other's throats. <clears throat> and I wasn't very happy either, because I'd lost control. Really, I'd lost control. I was just sitting there as a, a guy that they'd seen around for too many years. John wanted everything totally honest, didn't want production techniques. He wanted to record so that everything that we put down would be used in that way. There would be no overdubbing, no editing. If we used multi-track work, it was only to improve the balance, that's all. I was becoming redundant. George Martin's comments here are from an interview in the early 80s, and his remark about losing control gives us some insight into his perspective on working with the Beatles. Although he and the four members of the band operated as equals in the studio, and even though he had been marginalized during the recording of the White Album as the Beatles took over, 
Martin continued to see himself as the man in charge. He was the producer, after all, and he subscribed to the idea of the producer as a senior figure overseeing and directing everything. He came to the Get Back project with the apparent understanding that he would be the producer of the multi-track recordings that would be made for the television special. At the same time, in a move that would ultimately complicate the situation, Paul had asked recording engineer Glenn Johns to come on board the project. Glenn was the first independent engineer in Britain, and he had most recently recorded the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus television program, which had been filmed in December 1968. And since the director of Get Back was Michael Lindsay Hogg, who had also directed the Rolling Stones special, it made sense for Glenn to record Get Back as well, since it too was originally planned for television. So Glenn was initially hired as the engineer for the TV special. The reason Glenn's presence complicated things is that he was also beginning to make the very rare crossover from recording engineer to producer. He'd already produced two albums for the Steve Miller Band while still performing engineering duties for groups like the Rolling Stones. Here's Glenn from a 1982 BBC interview. I mean, I was very proud of the fact that I'd been recognized as an engineer in the manner that I had, and I was sought after in the way I was. But to actually make the move to cross over between one and the other, in those days again, you have to remember that, that, that engineers were never, did not become producers. They were engineers and remained so. Producers were another breed of people. I really had to battle like hell to get recognized. And I mean, people knew that I was actually producing things. They knew bloody well that the producer had been reading the paper for however long while I'd been doing it, but they still never really recognized it. It was just so inbuilt. It was just one of those things that had to be broken down. This is not to suggest that Glenn walked into the Get Back project with the intention of taking over George Martin's role as producer. In fact, Glenn seemed quite content to take on the engineering duties while Martin handled production. Over the course of the month, however, Glenn's natural production instincts, coupled with the Beatles' inability to make a decision about practically anything, and Martin's increasingly confused place in the order of things, made for blurry boundaries. On the first day of filming, Thursday, January 2nd, at Twickenham Film Studios, Martin and Glenn were both on set, but the only recording being done was by the film crew. There was no kind of proper equipment for getting their performances on tape, a point George Harrison noted early in the day. Where's the console and all that? The, which the what? The mixer and the eight tracks and all that. I was done for the year for rehearsals. Martin would take up the task of procuring proper recording gear for the rehearsals, but he and several others, including Paul, noted the apparent unsuitability of the soundstage for recording. This place sounds terrible now, but it may just be great. Never mind. Get it. With this, the PA stuff's arriving this afternoon, isn't it? Great. Yeah, you can never tell with these places that are yeah. supposed to be terrible acoustically. This topic will continue to arise over the next week of filming. Essentially, to record properly, the Beatles would have needed to build a recording studio on the soundstage, a solution which comes up in some of the conversation captured on tape. None of them makes a decision about this, however, and without studio mics, a multi-track recorder, or a mixing console, or a proper place to record, George Martin has very little to do. Like the Beatles, he's lost in this large empty space, and he has no way to impose any kind of structure on the proceedings. Two of us riding nowhere, spending someone's heart and pain. 
Although the Beatles do low-energy run-throughs of a number of songs, there's little progress on the second day of shooting, Friday, January 3rd, where Martin is again present. Some of the dialogue indicates that Glenn, the previous day, had suggested that the band perform Paul's song, Two of Us, on acoustic guitars instead of electric. This is the kind of suggestion a producer would normally have made, and Martin may well have been contributing to these discussions about arrangements himself. In the meantime, the Beatles' studio in the basement of their Apple office building was under construction, but this was being overseen not by George Martin, but by... Magic Alex, they used to call him. And he would come up with ideas to John and say, you know, these guys manipulating machines don't really know what the future brings. I mean, you know, John, you could be having digital recording. It's just around the corner. We can have that. We can have a telephone, which you don't need to pick up. You can just say, get me George Martin. It will automatically dial itself. Things like that. He said, I've invented a paint you can put on the walls, and uh, by collecting two electrodes, a whole wall will glow with light. And to support this, he would bring up little gadgets. He was a very clever chap, very clever inventor. They were always little things, you know, little boxes that were played tunes, kind of thing we get in calculators today. But he would tend to miss out on some pretty o- obvious ones. In this conversation on January 6th, it's clear that Martin has no faith in Magic Alex, and George Harrison, by his reaction, seems to share that sentiment. Now, well, yes, uh, I mean, it's... there isn't one in the country. Now, Alex said he can build one. I don't think we should have a built Alex one in because it might go wrong. Yes. You know? So I think, I think it's better to have something that we know we can use and is reliable. Okay, well, if we... The Beatles wanted to continue to record on 8-track as they had begun doing on the White Album the previous year. As Martin just said in that clip, there was no 8-track recording console available. It's not like 8-track mixing boards were just lying around London. As an immediate solution to this problem, George Martin proposed borrowing two four-track recording desks from EMI and wiring them together. Eight-track tape recorders weren't exactly growing on trees either, but Martin suggested using the eight-track machine George Harrison had recently purchased if necessary. Unfortunately, none of that solved the immediate problem of recording and playback at Twickenham. When Martin shows up the next day, the 7th, he may have had some equipment with him, But even if all the equipment had been delivered, no movement is made toward making the space more acoustically viable. The empty film soundstage was unacceptable, and no plans were ever made toward building a better space for recording within that soundstage. The Beatles are at least attempting to rehearse, but on the fourth day of shooting, the atmosphere of lethargy and anxiety was already pervasive. This conversation between Paul, George, and Michael Lindsay Hogg reveals the state of the Beatles' union. But we keep coming up against that one, and I keep saying, yeah, well, I'd like to do this, this, and that. Yeah, and I'd like to do this, and I'd like to do that, and I'd like to do that, and we end up doing something again that nobody really wants to do. Well, you know, I think, you know, if this Maybe one turns into ab- that, it should definitely be the last for all of us. Because there just isn't any point in having it. I think that'd be sad, I mean, as an audience. Oh, it's stupid, you know, it is just stupid. But it's even more stupid the other way, to go through it. 
I agree, but it's because there's time where you could be using for a lot of your own I wrote in my book, because I try to keep a diary of what's going on, so I can cut it, and doldrums is the word I use. The doldrums have been coming like a, like to a ship on a boat. Oh, the Beatles have been in doldrums for at least a year. By the end of the week, on January 10th, George Harrison had had enough. Amid the indecision, the lack of direction, and the rising tensions, he walked out. The following Monday and Tuesday, John, Paul, and Ringo continued rehearsing, but there was a prevailing sense that they were in limbo at this point. On the 15th, all four Beatles met privately to discuss the situation, and George wisely insisted they leave Twickenham and work on properly recording their new songs in the studio in the basement of the Apple Building at 3 Savile Row. The only problem was that, as George Martin had predicted, the Apple Recording Studio wasn't ready. There was no gear there because Magic Alex's 76-track machine wasn't ready yet, and the board wasn't in, and the studio itself had some funny acoustics out of Twitter in one corner. Oh, and right behind one of the walls was the air conditioning plant for the whole building, which occasionally would set up with a huge thump and a rumble. And the most amazing thing of all was that when we started to run our lines through from the control room into the studio, we found solid concrete and no holes. To get a road drill and do it, you know, that would have been the only way of doing it. So we had to sort of open the doors and run the lines through the doors. There you go. And so, just as he had proposed on the 6th, Martin borrowed two four-track mixing desks from EMI and connected them to George Harrison's eight-track tape machine. EMI also loaned studio monitors, microphones, and some other outboard recording gear, and Glenn brought in some microphones as well. Within a week, George Martin and Glenn Johns managed to cobble together a workable enough recording space in the basement of Apple Records so that they could all begin work again on January 21st. She came in through the bathroom window Protected by a silver spoon While the studio was a little more makeshift than the studios they were normally used to working in, the Beatles were back in familiar enough territory that their rehearsals gradually became more focused. The next day, January 22nd, George Harrison invited keyboardist Billy Preston to sit in with the band, which further encouraged everyone to be on better behavior. From here on out, things began to improve, though the bar for improvement at this point was admittedly pretty low. Even though this was now the second project, where he was feeling effectively pushed aside by the Beatles, George Martin did a couple of revealing things here. As Glenn recalled in his memoir, Soundman, quote, by the time we moved to Savile Row, George, realizing I was in an awkward position, was kind enough to take me to lunch in order to put my mind at rest, saying I was doing a great job, everything was fine, and I was not stepping on his toes in any way, end quote. Several years ago, I spoke to recording engineer John Curlander, who started working as an assistant on Beatles sessions in mid-1968. John has had a remarkable career, which includes recording the scores for Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies. But at the beginning of his career, he spent a lot of time with the Beatles during the making of Abbey Road. And when I interviewed him, he told me about working with George Martin during the making of that album. I mean, the, the, one of the things that I remember the clearest is, you know, those massive big slabs of chocolate, like Cadbury's chocolate, you, you see them at, at, yeah. the, at Heathrow Airport. 
George always came in for those sessions with two things. One with one or two newspapers and a big slab of this Cadbury's dairy chocolate. And that was for us. That was for him and uh, Jeff and me. And we would keep it. And we would, like, when the guys came in, we'd hide it and, because otherwise it would just get nabbed. And that was kind of like his way of bonding with us. Like, we're, you know, the chocolate is ours. So, and then he'd bring in a fresh one every day. I know, I've heard of people doing that in corporate things. Like, where, you know, I know my wife does it. She works, you know, she brings in candy for everybody for the team. And that kind of sticks in my mind as kind of a memory of the days when things got sticky. And then the other thing, as I said, were the newspapers. Like he'd sit there and bury himself in the newspaper until we got back on a more creative spell. Martin was a good manager. And even if the Beatles couldn't acknowledge it, he knew his senior position in all of this. And he knew the value of encouraging the people around him. He also knew the importance of good, clear boundaries. On the third day of recording at the Apple Studio, Thursday, January 23rd, right at the beginning of the day, he says this. It's a problem with Glenn, though, because I'd like him, you know, if he's starting the thing, I'd like him to finish it. It's silly, really, to change horses midstream. There's no context for this comment on the tape, so it's not exactly clear what Martin is talking about here. He could have been talking about Glenn from a production standpoint, but he most likely meant that he thought Glenn should finish engineering the recordings instead of bringing in an engineer from EMI, like Jeff Emmerich. This question may have been in the air, and if he had felt threatened by Glenn in any way, Martin could have replaced him with Emmerich. But Martin advocated for Glenn to stay, and both George Martin and Glenn Johns kept attending the sessions, and both kept contributing. Glenn? 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 Glennis? And listening to the tapes, we can hear the Beatles often call out to Glenn in the control room to ask questions, and Glenn offers up comments in the way George Martin had in years past. But Martin was still there. My favorite example of this unusual situation comes on January 25th, as they're recording George Harrison's song, For You Blue. They run through a number of takes with Paul playing the piano in a kind of sketch of boogie-woogie style. Because you're sweet and lovely girl, I love you. Because you're sweet and lovely girl, I do. I love you more than girl, it's true. Between takes, George begins talking about the sound he wants for the song. Notice he asks Glenn how to achieve this effect. Now, remember earlier the newspaper that John Curlander mentioned George Martin brought with him to the sessions every day? As we would expect him to do in previous years, Martin steps up with a solution to Harrison's request taking sheets of newspaper and laying them across the strings of the piano to create the desired sound. Oh, they're, they're making the piano into a piano. Oh, yeah, paper on it. George? Yeah? This is called prepared piano, altering its sound by placing external objects against the piano strings. As we've already heard in this podcast, Changing the sound of the piano was one of the most common tricks in George Martin's production repertoire. But here, he's doing it not through tape manipulation, 
but through actual physical manipulation of the instrument. The previous year, 1968, jazz pianist Dave Brubeck applied a similar technique on his album Blues Roots, where he laid sheets of copper across his piano strings to create the sound he wanted for the record. Here's a clip from that recording. This may just be a coincidence, and Martin may have gotten the idea from somewhere else, but here's that bad piano sound he created with his newspaper. Thanks to Martin's diplomacy, this is how the rest of the sessions played out, with the Beatles mostly speaking to Glenn in the control room, but with Martin still on hand in something of a supervisory role, but one where he still very much has a voice. Here's a moment on the 27th when they're having trouble with the live PA setup in the Apple studio, and Martin steps in. It's funny though, you can't hear the piano either, because like, you know, when you had a PA, your microphones and your speakers had a particular relation to each other. When you, when you do a, a job on, on stage, all your mics are facing the same way and you've got the speakers going the opposite way, yeah. so if your speakers don't get on your mics. Yeah. Here, you've got mics in every conceivable position. You've got one pointing that way, one pointing that way, one pointing that way. So your speakers are very near to your mics and they're being picked up. So you, so get, you get how around. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. A great PA system isn't your answer. Technical problems aside, the mood had generally shifted toward the positive. I got a feeling good, a feeling deep inside. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Just as he had been on hand at Twickenham, George Martin was present at all the Apple Studio sessions. And as you can hear, he wasn't just sitting in the control room reading the newspaper. He was deeply involved. In terms of productivity, the change in location had had a profound effect. In the course of a week, the Beatles were in better spirits and had managed to pull themselves together and record nine complete songs. Pretty quick work for a band that seemed on the verge of collapse earlier in the month. This momentum carried them through to the big day, January 30th, when the Beatles played their final live set on the roof of the Apple building.
Immediately after the performance, downstairs in the studio where Glenn recorded the whole thing, the Beatles seemed newly energized, and Martin offered hopeful encouragement. It's come off actually, it must have been on a point. Musically. Yeah. yeah. Just the whole scene is fantastic. Yeah. Just the last scene. But as Mike was saying, you know, this is a very good dry run for something else too. Apart from the value of this own as it, as it stands. Yeah. If nothing else, they finally had an ending for their film. The following day, January 31st, they recorded Two of Us, Let It Be, and The Long and Winding Road, which was ostensibly the end of work on this project. Seeing an opportunity, Glenn took the initiative. The evening of the rooftop concert, without telling anyone what he was doing, he cut together a rough version of the album from the mixes he'd already done on the 24th, 26th, and 27th. George Martin had nothing to do with these mixes. rejected this compilation, and Glenn headed off to America for his honeymoon and to produce an album for another artist. In his absence, on February 5th, George Martin mixed the rooftop recordings himself. Then in March, Glenn produced several sessions for the song I Want You, She's So Heavy, did more mixes from the January sessions, and most importantly, supervised editing and overdubs by the Beatles on to Get Back and Don't Let Me Down. This is where they officially abandoned the all-live, no-overdub approach for this project. And even though he didn't receive a credit on the label, the mixes on this single, released in April, were Glenn's work. Satisfied with that single, the Beatles then handed over all the tapes from the January sessions to Glenn and gave him the task of assembling an album. In May 1969, he would make two more attempts at compiling something that would satisfy the Beatles but they rejected these as well. Confusion reigned until almost the bitter end on this project. On January 3rd and 4th, 1970, George Martin produced George, Paul, and Ringo in a recording of I, Me, Mine, since they had decided to use the song in the finished project now a theatrical film, to be titled Let It Be. The song Let It Be also saw more overdubs, including a new guitar solo and George Martin's score for trumpets, trombones, and saxophone. Glenn mixed the song for release as a single and finally made a fourth compilation of all of these tracks on January 5th, 1970. And the Beatles rejected that one, too. At the end of January, John and George worked with American producer Phil Spector on the recording of John's song, Instant Karma. They were so impressed with his work on that single that, without consulting anyone else, not Paul McCartney and certainly not George Martin, they turned all of the Get Back, Let It Be tapes over to Spector to let him have a go at turning these recordings into an album. In the course of a week, from March 23rd to April 2nd, Spectre remixed everything, and most notoriously, added orchestral overdubs onto The Long and Winding Road and Across the Universe. 
All the work Glenn Johns had done over the course of an entire year went uncredited, a fact he would remain bitter about forever afterward. George Martin had also been completely shut out, and he was just as displeased with the results. Paul rang me up one day and said, you know, they've taken the tapes of Let It Be, and they've taken the rate to America. I said, no, come on. And George and John had taken them and given them to Phil Spector and done all the things that um, John said he didn't want done. Yeah, they overdubbed voices, they put on heavenly choirs and lush orchestral arrangements and so on. Mm. And then they put out the record. And EMI at that point said, well, and they don't want your name on it because you didn't produce it. I said, well, I did the originals, which they worked on. So they said, well, maybe we'll give you some kind of credit. What do you, what do you want? So I said, well, why don't you put on it, produced by George Martin, overproduced by Phil Spector? <laughs> but they, um, they didn't agree with that. So who really produced these recordings? As we can hear on the session tapes, the Beatles were talking to Glenn in the control room the majority of the time. Even though he had been hired strictly as the engineer for the TV special, because he felt he was doing all of the work, Glenn came to the conclusion that he was producing these recordings. Here's his take on the situation. I think if the album had come out, my version of the album had come out, they had all agreed to uh, give me a producer's credit on the record. I sat each one of them down and I said, look, I know you originally employed me as the engineer on these sessions, but I, I consider that as there was no producer and as I was the only one there and I have actually put it together on my own, I would really appreciate a producer's credit. But in the quote we heard a minute ago, it's clear Martin considered himself the producer of these sessions, and as we've seen, there's ample evidence of his involvement. Glenn didn't have Martin's perspective of the bigger picture here. Martin was operating much as he had during the White Album sessions, stepping in when needed, but staying hands-off otherwise. He knew he couldn't wrestle control over the Beatles and make them more productive or get back on the right course. Only they could do that for themselves, so he simply made himself available and rode out the storm. But we also can't deny the work Glenn was doing here. Listening to the tapes, a more objective assessment would be that George Martin and Glenn Johns co-produced these recordings, but not in any intentional, coordinated way. They ended up cooperating and working around each other simply because of the confused nature of the project. When the Let It Be album was finally released in May 1970, the official credit read, Reproduced for Disc by Phil Spector. George Martin and Glenn Johns received a simple thank you on the back of the record jacket. In 2003, when Apple released a stripped-down version of the album entitled Let It Be Naked, remixed and without any of Spector's work, the official credit read, Produced by George Martin, Engineered by Glenn Johns. The entirety of the Get Back, Let It Be sessions can be seen as the Beatles learning that you can never go home again, while also discovering the high cost of trying. The whole premise of Get Back was to return to a simpler method of working, but by January 1969, the Beatles were no longer the raw little rock and roll band they had once been. Instead, working in close collaboration with George Martin, the Beatles had developed into artists that tirelessly sought to expand the possibilities of the recording studio. As Glenn Johns himself later observed, they became, quote, 
the masters of the produced record, end quote. Even though they had finally found their live groove again on the Apple rooftop, the Beatles' miserable experience during the January sessions, as they struggled to rediscover themselves as a live band, told them not only that the end was near, but may have also reminded them of who they really were and how they truly worked best. Starting in February 1969, as they slowly began the recordings that would become the Abbey Road album, they abandoned the all-live approach for their regular, highly-produced working method, and they finally, explicitly, asked Martin to join them, to produce them, once and for all, as he had before. Thanks for listening. Producing the Beatles is written, directed, edited, and produced by me, Jason Krupa. Special thanks to John Curlander for talking to us about his time working with George Martin and the Beatles. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at PTBeatles, and for more information, including show notes and references, be sure to visit our website, producingthebeatles.com. You can also find our email there if you have questions or comments. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to rate us on iTunes and let everyone know about us every way you can. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to us using your favorite podcast platform. <laughs>